This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Shakespeare's Revenge, and the author, John O'Shea. And John joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, John. Hi, Steve. I'm going to read a couple of things that you have written about your book just to give everyone an understanding of where we're headed. Stay with us, folks. We're not going to be quoting Shakespeare. (laughs) Of course, those of you who love Shakespeare will, you know, maybe be sad. But this is a real twist when it comes to what we generally think about Shakespeare. This is what you have written, John. Shakespeare Revenge is a thriller about a young man who stumbles onto a trail that he thinks might lead to the location of Shakespeare's original drafts. He quickly learns that Shakespeare was really a criminal banished from London and who had a plan to cause widespread damage, and that plan for revenge can still be put in motion today. Well, that is very, very different, and uh, what prompted you, motivated you to go down this road? Well, you know, it it was the first time that I had heard of the notion that no one had ever seen a page of Shakespeare's writing with his original handwriting on it. And I don't think anyone uh, would believe that, you know, right right from the first statement like that, you'd go, well, what's that about? Yeah, and and that was my first question is, how could that be? And then the second question is, as a you know, as a thriller writer, well, what if they did? Uh, you know, and that leads to the next question: Well, where might that be, and how might you find it? And what if it pointed you in a direction that you weren't ready for? And of course, by that I meant, you know, what if it tells us that Shakespeare wasn't who we thought he was? And of course, and of course, the possibility of buried treasure here right so the notion that um any any page with shakespeare's original writing on it i imagine these days would sell at auction for a handsome sum so that in and of itself is treasure and let alone if you could find an entire manuscript or two or a significant portion of the canon now why did you make Maine, the place of the story? It, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, I, I, I live in and around uh, New York City and Connecticut, and um, the idea that something has been left to be discovered in New York City could happen, but along the coast of Maine, uh, much more likely. And uh, Maine is a you know, it is a landing point for a lot of early explorers to the country. And uh, when you are trying to find hidden treasure and you want the audience in today's times to believe that it could have been in an area that was untouched all these years of the, of the country's existence, Maine makes a great backdrop. And, you know, you, you, you still have in Maine this feel of, of untouched small town, you know, innocent heritage. You can still go up to the coast of Maine and, and get the sense of a salty, you know, fishing village. Um, and you can hear it in the way that people talk up there. You know, it's very different from metropolitan areas on the, on the East Coast. And then you have the backdrop of the wilderness and uh, acres of undeveloped land. And so it, for this book, where we, where we basically have a chase across small-town Maine, it, it feels great. I can see it on the big screen already. <laughs> <laughs> From your lips to God's ears, as they say, Steve. <laughs> All right. Tell us about Tanner Cook, the main character. How was he involved? Yeah, so Tanner Cook is... Uh, 
a young aspiring cyclist who has uh, in the past uh, year or so graduated from the University of Maine. And uh, unfortunately, as the story opens, uh, several months back, he was in a, uh, a terrible racing accident over in Spain. And as he's on the mend, uh, as his, his leg, which got crushed, is on the mend, he has he needs to work, and so he's taken to helping the state clean out uh, estates of those who haven't left a will behind. And that's at the point at which we uh, he discovers in an old farmhouse, a hidden attic. And this attic was actually the uh, the workshop of a recluse who spent a good portion of his life reading into the text of the text of Shakespeare's plays. And within there, he discovers some clues to uh, not only the hidden location of uh, Shakespeare's original works, but uh, Shakespeare's original identity. You know, a person who really isn't who we thought he was at all. That's right. That's right. Um, Or so... You have to read the book to find out. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially when you when you hear the words "criminal intent." <laughs> mm. Well, the, the, you know the fascinating thing about Shakespeare's time was um, there. It, it wasn't a large population, especially at the upper rings of society, and those likely suspects who might have been Shakespeare if it was not Shakespeare himself as the author, there is such a good degree of of intrigue, of capability, of motivation, uh, mystery, uh, that, you know, if it was not Shakespeare who wrote his plays, there are some really juicy, mysterious characters who would who would fill the vacuum. Especially when we know how Shakespeare probed the human condition psychologically, emotionally. Uh, he was right on the nerve center, and so he may have been just a whole lot more eccentric and, and wild than we could ever imagine. Well, you know, that's that's the neat thing about Shakespeare, and I think partially why he's still relevant in a couple ways today. One, you know, the fact that he did tap into these timeless universal elements in in people and you know that's what his works explore so in one sense those those elements of us as you know human beings is, are always going to be around the other reason i think that you know he is is highly relevant today is just as authors like myself have to fight for every eyeball and and eardrum that we can get our hands around uh for attention whether it's the internet or, um, you know, the, the fact that you can get a movie on demand anywhere, that you've got 300 cable channels. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly trying to battle for attention. He, did, he had to do the same thing against, you know, everything from hangings to, quarter, to quarterings to cockfights to bear fights to brothels, gambling dens. He had to fight for an audience just like we do today. And so we're very much akin uh, just across generations. And, of course, the theme of murder in his stories. He loved blood. You know, he loved blood. He loved blades. He loved suicides. He loved poisoning. Um, you know, he invented a lot of words around the frame, like cold-blooded. Um, yeah, I mean, here was somebody who we don't think of as the ultimate thriller writer, but for sure, he loved it all. And... uh yeah, and you can just see it in the remakes of his works. Um, you know, you could easily slap an R rating on some of the uh, uh, of some of the remakes of his his classics. And of course, when there's buried treasure, there are others chasing the same thing. So Tanner probably has some very very dangerous competitors. Yeah, you know, one of my my favorite all time storytellers uh, is Alfred Hitchcock. And, you know, it doesn't take too long in many Alfred Hitchcock movies before somebody of such innocence and curiosity suddenly finds themselves in way over their head, you know, in an essence, 
a race to the end versus those you know surrounding him or her and um that's that's I, that has always stuck with me and i think makes for the most tense thrillers and that's it's a huge component of shakespeare's revenge so tanner is betrayed attacked and left for dead and then his brother suddenly disappears now how does his brother involved in this you know um sometimes when you know competitors and here we're talking about violent highly motivated highly incented competitors when they think that you've got the answer and they can't get a hold of you to get that answer they'll try all forms of leverage that they can including going after um family members and loved ones and 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 that's where tanner's only kin his uh his older brother uh gets wrapped up in the uh in the mystery and the chase and the chase also for Tanner to save his brother's life as well as to find the treasure. You know, the one thing I, I learned from listening to the likes of uh, of Steven Spielberg describe what what makes a good story is that m- most people say a story has a beginning, middle, and an end, and Steven Spielberg says, you know, some of the best stories never stop beginning. And and I think in the beginning of stories, that's where you get the best immediate bang for your buck, meaning all the stakes are raised immediately. And, uh, you know, all the stakes I try to raise immediately and then keep raising them. And, uh, you know, Tanner becomes under immediate pressure to get to the answer of who was Shakespeare. How did he come to America if he did? If he did, where, where did he go? And uh, if he brought his original manuscripts with him, where did they wind up? And the prologue is dated September 6, 1628. So, uh, you know, you jump right in at an interesting date. Why did you choose that? You know, it's, um, it's just about the time after which Shakespeare died. In fact... Uh, it's it's a little bit after the time that Shakespeare died, and uh, I think it for me it was it was a, it was delicious fun to replay for me the last moments in somebody's life um, and replay them not where they should have been in in all historical record over in Europe but over here. And so uh, it was a delicious taunt, taunt on history right out from the beginning of, of the novel. And, of course, then we bring it immediately back to, uh, to, to modern time, but um, it was fun and hopefully a great setup for uh, the unfolding story to come. Your research must have been so challenging. You know, I, I, I'd like to say, and maybe... Maybe down the road I'd be able to say that this is all I do in life but write. But like many um, up-and-coming writers, uh, I do have a day job. And so uh, fitting in the research alongside normal work um, was a nice challenge. Uh, And I say nice challenge because some of the things that I had to learn about, from Shakespeare to Elizabethan England, to uh to poisons and uh bicycling cycling and scuba diving and the main geography lighthouses uh all things that I love to learn about and uh and all of it gave me a, a nice appreciation for the added depth that you uh that you encounter especially around Shakespeare and his works well Shakespeare I really had fun Shakespeare revenge a modern day thriller and who knows who Shakespeare is? He truly may be a very dangerous man. Well, let's uh, let's let everyone decide. I hope everyone gets a chance to read Shakespeare's Revenge, Steve. Thanks so much for the time. Well, tell us how to get your book. For sure. You can um, get it off of Amazon.com, iUniverse.com, or my website, JohnOshea.com. Pretty much most of the electronic uh, book sites that uh, folks would encounter. Um, So uh, I hope they do. Any closing thoughts? 
No, I really appreciate the time. This is, uh, the, you know, part of the thrill of a lifetime to be able to talk about, uh, from, for me, my first book in print. So um, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to explore it with me. We want to thank you, John, for being on iUniverse Radio. Thanks, Steve. That was John O'Shea. He is the author of his book, Shakespeare's Revenge. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Pants on Fire, Cutting Through the Biggest Lies of the 21st Century American Plutocracy. And the author, Paul Christofferson. And Paul joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paul. Steve, how are you? Well, it's good to have you with us. This is going to be a very timely uh, discussion about what's happening in our economy and our government, uh, Wall Street, the banking business. Uh, it's very, very timely. So let me read what you have written about your book. You say, big money has taken over our country, both parties. Our government now serves it. Profits as a share of the U.S. economy have never been so high, nor the share of wealth at the top so great, nor job growth so low as they are now, but the plutocracy can never have enough. So it makes up lies. I think people, most people in the country, the regular American taxpayer voter looks at Washington and Wall Street and big business and goes, you know, you guys are just making up your own rules and you don't care about me. You're just going to line your pockets. I mean, that's what it seems like. Well, I think that's right. The, the word lie is a harsh word, and I, and I want to defend that for just a second. Uh, when you call somebody a liar and say they're lying and so forth, you, you kind of need to... Um, back that up a little bit. Uh, the way I get there is uh, there are these outcomes today from all kinds of things, like the, the Wall Street bailout being um, maybe a big example, where the outcomes are not what was uh, advertised. Uh, but you can say the same thing about the um, health care law or the, or the war in Iraq. I mean, depending on your politics, you can, you can point to uh, whatever you whatever you choose to point to as a kind of an outcome that was disappointing. And this happens now so often and so regularly that you have to ask, wait, 
why are we getting these outcomes that are not at all what was advertised or expected? And it seems to me there are two possible, um, there are two possible explanations. Uh, at least I can only think of two. Uh, one is that the, um, the people in charge, the policy makers, the people in control of things, for all their expertise and brains and their education, and <clears throat> I read someplace there are 200 PhDs doing research at the Federal Reserve. Yeah, quite extraordinary when you start to think of it. <clears throat> One explanation for the um, for the uh, outcomes is that all those people are just not competent. That they, uh, you know, they, they're just stumbling around the room in the dark and they don't know what they're doing. That has that has not um, seemed to me to be a satisfying explanation. I mean, I, I know some of these fellows and, and people that they're, they're just wicked smart, know all kinds of things, have access to all kinds of computer models, and so I mean, they know all kinds of things, and therefore the explanation, which is that they're incompetent, it, it just it beggars the uh, imagination. I, I can't get there. What, what that leaves is the other. Uh, possible explanation, which is that these people are getting their intended outcomes. <laughs> They're just fibbing to us about what their intentions and, and uh, what their agenda really is. They're lying about their intentions. Uh, now, <clears throat> we all have to choose which explanation fits the best. Uh, I, I just happen to think the um, uh, the, the lying one is better than the first one because the first one's just not plausible, which leaves you with lying. And, and that's why I, I wrote up these lies. There are others, but um, that, that's how I use the word and, and why. Well, we have a list of seven lies in your book, and you have a background that is filled with all kinds of credentials on Wall Street. Why don't you give us a little bit of your professional background? Uh, well, you're very flattering. Uh, actually, I started out in the Episcopal Church. I have been and, and still am an Episcopal priest, and I was on, in the parish for a little bit, and uh, since then I've been on Wall Street. Uh, I worked at an old firm called Cooter Peabody, and then uh, another one, a little bit better known lately, called Bear Stearns. And then in 1992, I started my own shop. It's called, it was called New Vernon Associates. And New Vernon Associates was a kind of a Wall Street boutique. Uh, and I sold that in, um, in 2008. Uh, and after that, I, I, uh, I wrote this book. Well, let's uh, talk about some of the... Just some of the principal ideas. There's so much to discuss here, and we obviously don't have enough time to get into details. But let's talk about a few things that are high on your list. Um, I'm, I'm looking here at some things that uh, you want to emphasize. Let's... Okay, here's one that everyone knows about, of course, the, all the news about the Wall Street bailout. You say, why was the Wall Street bailout a fraud? We know this, that in the, um, in the emergency of the early 1930s, when the, the Depression was really getting rolling, FDR declared uh, what were called bank holidays. Uh, basically, for a period of time, the banks were, um, were closed. And by the time the banks reopened, uh, the public knew which ones were sound and which ones were not sound, but they knew that their deposits were safe. They, they, uh, uh, FDR signed into law this thing called the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance, so that people could be sure about their deposits, they could be sure that payments would clear, uh, they could be sure about the... the um, the transactional nature of things going on uh, uh, continuing. Um, uh, then, uh, then he passed the um, the 1934 law called Glass-Steagall, which prohibited uh, deposit-taking banks from betting in the stock market and from doing uh, all kinds of things with depositors' money. Uh, the direct cost. Uh, this is my point. The direct cost to the government of all that was zero. 
the direct cost to the government of everything FDR did in the 30s was zero, and it worked. Um, we come forward to the 21st century, and what we do instead is we throw trillions, trillions of dollars uh, at the banks. So you have to say, well, what's the, what is the difference between then and now? I mean, why was the cost zero then and trillions now? And the only explanation I can come up with is that then, in the 30s, it was not part of the national agenda to serve and protect the people at the top. Uh, today, it is the uh, uh, today it's the whole agenda. That is the agenda of our um, of our government today, which is to serve and protect the people at the top. When when Wall Street got in trouble, um, well, you remember when Detroit got in trouble, the um, the um, CEOs had to come to Washington and promise to do all kinds of things and and. Uh, submit plans and, and grovel, and they, they got uh, very, very little money out of it. When Wall Street got in trouble, um, there were emergency you know, meetings over the weekend in private, undisclosed, at the end of which um, they got trillions of dollars absolutely unconditionally, absolutely unconditionally. Uh, th that was the most remarkable aspect to me, is if you... Um, if you give um, money to a, um, a beggar on the street who holds out his uh, tin cup, if you, if you give uh, that uh, person some money, you sort of know what's going to happen. If instead you say, let's, let's walk across the street here over to the cafe and I'll buy you lunch, uh, then you're going to get a different outcome. The remarkable thing about the Wall Street bailout was was the trillions of dollars and the trillions of dollars that were were given absolutely unconditionally. And the reason we know it was just a gift, just a straight wealth transfer from the public to the banks. The reason we know that's all it is is that um, none of that money made it past the banks. There's no more lending going on now than there was during the. Uh, supposed uh, crisis. It just went to the banks and it stopped there, every dime of it. Well, here's some of the lies that you highlight that you put in Pants on Fire. Uh, just uh, read a couple of the titles. Loose money is another way to grow the economy. That's uh, lie number two. Here's lie number three. The stock market is the best investment and an indicator of the economy. Well, that is a shocking statement for most people. Most people would go, what? I thought the stock market is the greatest indicator of the economy. Tell us what you mean there. Um, well, I, I've been following this uh, since, um, I've been doing this since 1975. And uh, I, I've just been so interested over the years to watch the, um, the uh, almost contortionist uh, uh, efforts that get made to relate what the stock market does on a given day or in a given month or in a given year related to what's going on in the economy. Extraordinary uh, uh, efforts get made to, to try to link them because m much of the time, most of the time, it, it's not apparent what, what the connection is between um, you know, unemployment going up and the stock market going up uh, I mean, that, that kind of thing happens all the time. And explanations uh, come around like, well, of course, it's not what's happening now. It's the expectation that, that people are looking. <laughs> it seems to me a better explanation is that um, all the stock market is, is it's a thing that the Federal Reserve inflates and reflates and inflates and reflates. And it has nothing to do with the... Um, has nothing to do with the real economy. There is no correlation that I can think of between um, um, uh, the condition of people in the real economy on the one hand, and on the other hand, what's going on in the stock market. The last two or three months being a, being just a marvelous example of how um, what what the Federal Reserve does is it prints another several hundred billion dollars and it goes right into the stock market. And that's its one, one and only effect. It has no other outcome except that it reflates financial asset uh, bubbles. Uh, but, but it has no effect on the real economy. Yeah, we rarely hear the term bubble 
uh, tied directly to what's going on in the stock market. All we hear are the reports of whether the stock market's up and down. And if it's up, we're all supposed to be happy. Well, there was, um, you remember uh, several years ago, there was this um, uh, phrase around called investor class. And there was a tremendous effort to, to make the investor class sound very, very broad and very well populated, like it included all of us and so forth. Uh, actually, the, the person who has a $50,000 401k and a $200,000 mortgage uh, is not really part of the investor class. I mean, not not really. Um, that person is not able to trade on inside information the way big people do. Uh, that person is just, uh, you know, he's the sap at the table. I don't mean to be harsh, but but that person is the sap at the table. The person who has a, um, a defined benefit pension, the stock market can quadruple or quintuple, and that person won't see any benefit from that. Defined benefit means means defined benefit. He, he's going to get his payment from his pension plan, or she, regardless of what the stock market does. The, the only beneficiary of a rising stock market is the... Um, is the pension plan, um, you know, the, the pension plan sponsor. So uh, I have I have uh, thought for years, not just recently, but I've thought for years that um, the only thing the Federal Reserve is interested in doing is inflating the stock market. And B, as it does that, it will have no, it, does, it doesn't have this spin-off effect. It doesn't have this follow-on derivative effect on the rest of the economy. It, it just doesn't. Now, an interesting thing happened a month or so ago is that um, the chairman of the Fed, Mr. Bernanke, finally came out and said, he, he said, since 1987, when um, Alan Greenspan uh, took over, neither he nor uh, Mr. Bernanke has, has ever actually come out and said this before, but um, at last month, Mr. Bernanke said it, was that uh, what he's doing with all this quantitative easing that we're seeing now, uh, all the money printing, he came out and said, what I'm doing is I'm inflating the stock market. And then he went on to say, well, of course, that will, that will produce spending and so on and so forth. <clears throat> he still has not come clean about the, um, the you know, the, that linkage not being there. He hasn't fessed up to that yet. But he at least has come out and said, uh, all he's doing is pumping up the stock market. Fascinating, fascinating. He just didn't explain what all it took to get there. Well, Paul, uh, a lot of material here, uh, very timely, uh, tied to a lot of news that we're hearing every day. The title of the book, Pants on Fire, Cutting Through the Biggest Lies of 21st Century American Plutocracy, and the author, Paul Christofferson. Paul, tell us how to get your book. The book has a website, www. Christofferson, which is Christopher with a son on the end, Christofferson, and then the letter P, ChristoffersonP.com. That's the book website. Very good, and of course, you, we can all get it at iUniverse or any of the online retailers, book retailers. You can order it. Thanks again, Paul, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. That was Paul Christofferson. He is the author of his book, Pants on Fire, Cutting Through the Biggest Lies of 21st Century American Plutocracy. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. You 
Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend It principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out GirlfriendIt.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Walk Out, and the author, Henry C. Woodrum, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. His son, Hank Woodrum Jr., has the privilege of publishing his father's book, and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Hank. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, it's just a privilege to have you here and to tell your father's story, an incredible thriller. Uh, As someone said, a World War II tale of high adventure. That's what this is. So let me read a little bit what you've written about your book, so give everyone kind of a general view of what we're going to talk about. You say this, Lieutenant Woodrum was scheduled to begin a three-day pass to London. Instead, he had to fly a combat mission that lasted three months. This is his account of how he survived, thanks to some quick thinking and the help of the French underground. Well, that gets everybody's blood pumping, just those few words. (laughs) My goodness, what an experience. And tell us a little bit about how he tried to publish his book years ago, and then it kind of fell to you to finish it. My dad felt it was important to tell what happened to him and to, uh, not because he felt that he had done so much, he didn't think he was a hero, he was just doing his job, but because he felt it was important for everybody to know how much help he got from the people in uh, German-occupied France after he was shot down. And he started putting this together back in, oh, probably even back into the 60s and fine-tuned it and worked on it. And eventually, in the 80s, he had it together and uh, tried to get it published. But back at that time, we were just getting over the aftermath of Vietnam, and there was not a whole lot of interest in World War II stories. So he was unable to get it published. And then he he became ill in 88, 89, and passed away in 90. And eventually now my brother and I are getting to be able to get his work published and out there so that his accounts of what happened to him and how he was helped is is out there for the world to take a look at. So here he was back, uh, back in 1944, right? Well, actually, he probably stayed in the officer's club a little longer than he should because he was supposed to start a three-day pass to go to London the next morning. And instead, he got rousted out of bed early in the morning, about oh, dark 30, and and told that uh, he and his crew had to fly a combat mission because there was another pilot that was sick, so he had to take their place. So instead of uh, a three-day pass to London, he had to get up and and fly this combat mission, thinking it would last a few hours, and then he'd be able to come back and start his three-day pass to London. It was his 35th combat mission, and they were bombing a bridge on the outskirts of Paris. They got hit. Uh, They finished their bomb run, dropped the bombs on target, and uh, the plane was on fire, and they ordered, uh, he ordered the crew to, to bail out. That was that was his morning and I think after he got out of the plane and uh, was in the air he felt you know exultation you know relief and I survived the burning aircraft he was looking around for 
parachute to see how many other crew members got out, was able to see several others, uh, and he kind of felt, well, I'm going to live to survive at least another day. Then he started seeing, realizing that the Germans were shooting at him as he came down in his chute. Well, so they got a little it. angry, right. a little upset, made it personal, and he started cursing the Germans as he was coming down. Uh, as he got closer to the ground, he could see the Germans following him as he drifted to the ground, and he uh, figured that he was going to be caught soon as he soon as he touched the ground. So the French underground, obviously the incredible, courageous people that helped uh, Americans and other soldiers fighting against the Nazis, uh, he probably loved those people just like family. Well, he did. Uh, He was, uh, obviously he survived or I wouldn't be here, but he was able to evade the initial capture by Germans and make his way in to, with uh, friendly French citizens who eventually got him in contact with the underground. And during the... Initially, uh, they were going to try and get him back to Allied control as soon as possible. But he was shot down May 28, 1944, which was just 10 days before the D-Day invasion of June 6, 1944. And that changed everything. Now the priority was getting people in with intelligence and supplies on targets and get people out that knew certain things that the Allies needed to know. So as a result, he was moved around to several different locations. Uh, and he made close friends with the people that, uh, that hit him from the Germans, uh, and some of them were lifelong friends, the last family he stayed with the Bear Keys. Uh, he visited them several times in France, and they came to California to visit uh, him uh, in California at least two or three times. And he was in one of only two Americans invented by invited by the French government in 1965, right, to represent the American military. Yes, they had a ceremony. Uh, in 65, uh, celebrating the end of the war. It came out just shortly after the book is Paris Burning was published. And Dad and some of the people that saved him are mentioned in the book. But Dad represented the, uh, the airman, and the other American that was invited represented the, the infantry. And they were guests for the French government to Paris to celebrate the end of the war. So this is a personal day-by-day account of what happened to your father. That That is just, uh, I mean, you couldn't ask for a, a bigger window in time as we here in 2010 to really understand what he went through. It is. It, uh, it shows what happened behind the scenes. I mean, you know, you read the headlines, you know about the battles, but these were behind the scenes that, private citizens doing things to help the war effort. Uh, and, and this was a case of friend helping friend, even though the friends didn't speak the same language or different countries, uh, but they had one common goal, which was to uh, defeat the, the Germans and regain the freedom. Uh, and he, he tells about the individuals that helped him, uh, how he was move from place to place. Uh, and I think one big difference between uh, the way Dad wrote the story and what happened to him is that this whole time, because of the D-Day invasion, he was not able to be moved out, and he stayed in France until Paris was liberated, and he was moved several different locations. And he was out, he was able to see things, he uh, was able to go out into, uh, in other words, he wasn't held in a cellar the whole time. He had contacts with French citizens. He had uh, some real close encounters with uh, some Germans as well during that three-month period. Now, let's talk about a couple of those. Uh, You write about a beautiful German corporal named Lisa. Yes, that was uh, his first encounter uh, with the the enemy. Uh, The first place he stayed was in a bar. 
and it so happened that the people that owned the, the bar restaurant uh, spoke English. Uh, they were Basque. They'd spent time in uh, Central America. They also were performers. They had a band, and they uh, played at the Waldorf Astoria. So they knew New York. They knew U.S. They spoke English. And I think it was the first or second day that he was there. The restaurant was closed for the afternoon, but uh, Carlos forgot to lock the door. And Lisa came in with a couple of her German soldier friends. And so they had to ad lib. And uh, Dad was there at the bar, and he was introduced as a friend of the owner who spoke some English. And he and Lisa began talking. Uh, and it got uh, it got to the point where he was wondering how much information he was given, whether he was talking too much, and uh, a little concerned. But at the same time, there was mutual attraction between the two of them. <laughs> That's right out of the movies. Yeah, right out yeah, of it, the movies. It is, and it's true. It's uh, you know, and I've said this before that you know, Forrest Gump was a great movie. And Forrest Gump was in, you know, numerous events throughout the course of the years the movie took place over uh, and was involved in some significant events. But that was all fiction. This, is, this isn't fiction. This is things that uh, really happen. It's true. It's factual. And, uh, you know, it's amazing because he, he, he started the war December 7, 1941. He was at Wheeler Field and uh, waiting for orders for, to begin pilot training. Later went to pilot training and then uh, was shot down over his Paris over his 35th mission. Uh, was there when Paris was liberated and then after the war, which we called and flew the Berlin Airlift. Well, he encountered a German roadblock, again, something that seems like right out of the movies, while he was being moved by the underground. Give us some details. Well, he was being moved. Uh, this was, he, he had been staying at, a, at an, an apartment in uh, the Versailles area. And uh, I don't think I mentioned this before, but uh, they had, uh, the person he stayed with ran the railroad yard, and they, came to find out that the Germans had 300 tanks in the yard that they were going to be moving out that day. And this was shortly after D-Day. So the underground, and there was probably several messages sent, but, but uh, his group, Dad, wrote a message saying, 300 tanks going to be leaving tonight. Well, the RAF came in and bombed that evening and destroyed the tanks. That caused a lot of pressure on the underground, so they had to move him. So they had him between two gendarmes they had him cuffed the 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 cover story was that he was a french prisoner going to be uh taken to be executed and they encountered this roadblock a german roadblock unexpectedly and the german sticks his head in to you know to check the papers and everything the gendarmes are sweating profusely because if they get caught they're going to be tortured and killed uh and this, you know, this uh, Hitler's uh, profession of the Aryan race, you know, the uh, uh, the utopian society, this sad sack corporal sticks his head in and he's got a Adam's apple bobbing back and forth and he's missing teeth and uh, uh, he, he looks at dad and sees that he's going to be executed and sees someone that's in an and, you know, worse situation than he is, stuck on the side of the road uh, watching cars, and he breaks into a big grin. And for that relieved the tension, and Dad just uh, grinned back at him, and the soldier waved them on, uh, much to the relief of the two gendarmes who were sweating profusely. Well, this is an incredible World War II tale of high adventure, obviously uh, the real... Uh, reality uh, beyond probably what we can even imagine, probably what you can even imagine, right, Hank? Yeah, it's just amazing that all these things happen. Uh, and, you know, when I grew up as a kid, I, I knew some of the story, but, uh, you know, I didn't know all of it. 
I knew that he'd flown. I knew that he had been shot down. I knew that the French underground saved him. Uh, but, you know, of course, I'm biased, but I think it's a great story. I think the way Dad wrote it, it he, it's not a, well, this happened, and then I did this, and then, then I did this. It's almost like you're a fly on the wall, the way he describes the events. You're, you're there. You can actually see it happening. It's, uh, of course, I'm biased. I think it's a great story. Well, as he wrote, uh, certain events presented very tense moments for me as a young American pilot who couldn't speak a word of French, but there were also frustrating periods of waiting and wondering, many days filled with apprehension, when all I could do was try to stay aware of the events that were unfolding around me. So this, a day-by-day account of Henry C. Woodrum, and of course, uh, he passed away in 1990, retired Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. His son, Hank Jr., has published his book. And thank you, Hank, for doing this, and tell us how to get your book. Well, thank you very much. Uh, there's a website that tells a little about the story and, and about that. That's uh, www.walkout1944.com. There's a link there where you can order the book. And it's also available uh, online at all major book retailers, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and iUniverse.com. Well, it sounds like it should be made into a movie. Well, we're hoping. Well, thanks again, Hank. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it a lot. That was Hank Woodrum, Jr. He has published his father's book, uh, his father, Henry C. Woodrum, and the name of the... In the title of the book, Walk Out. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.